The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I think I need a minute to catch my breath as I was watching all these young people jump up and down. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, this morning. A few days ago, I was with a number of men from our, our church, men who are supposed to be my friends. And, uh, and the intent for getting together with them, with them was that I could get some support in readiness for this Sunday. And uh, so anyways, after I had unloaded the fact that this is an overwhelming chapter and so on and so forth, uh, you know, there was a pause and then one of them said, oh, come on, it's only the biggest chapter you're ever going to preach on, no pressure. And then another one said, well, what can you do to mess this one up? No pressure. And then finally... The wisest in the group said, you know, you can sum it up in five words. Jesus prayed, so should you. And that could be the end of the sermon. But after getting that support from my friends, I was reminded of, um, of a sermon that R.C. Sproul preached a number of years ago. I don't even remember what the sermon was on, but he started by saying this. He said, you know, in the Old Testament... God used donkeys to preach His Word to the people at that time. And even today, in pulpits around the world, (laughs) there are jackasses who are doing the same thing. And then he finished off by saying, present company included. And I, you know, if you have a problem with any of those words like donkeys or pulpits, you know, you can... (laughs) You can talk to R.C. Sproul about that. Uh, I'm just agreeing with him. There are chapters in the Bible that we come to and, and you, you are struck in the face with your insignificance. You are struck in the face at the magnificence of God and what He's done. And this chapter certainly is one of those chapters. It's a remarkable chapter. It contains 26 verses. And with the exception of the first 10 words, every single word in this chapter is a prayer that Jesus Christ prays. The first five verses, he is in communication with God. And in the next 6 to 26, 21 verses, he is praying for the believers. It is an exceptional chapter. And so to honor the majesty and magnificence of the one who spoke these words... We're going to read the entire chapter, and I'll ask you to stand with me. We dare not miss or skip a single word or a single verse in this chapter. John chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. 
For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew that with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You may be seated. The 17th chapter of John is, is a one-of-a-kind chapter in the entire Bible. I don't think there's any parallels to it at all anywhere in the Scripture. It is, it is a capstone chapter of a conversation that started three or four chapters ago. In chapter 13 and 14, we read that Jesus and his disciples were taking part in the Passover feast. As the, as the feast ended and they left the upper room, Jesus continued to teach them, and he made them many promises in that discourse. And one of the biggest, the greatest promises that Jesus made was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Once Jesus will leave, the Holy Spirit will come and indwell the believers. Chapter 17 brings us to the conclusion of this remarkable section of the Scriptures. Chapter 17 also marks a difference and a shift in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It marks the beginning of the end of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. He has been on earth for 33 years, and his time on earth is now coming to an end. And as that ministry of Jesus Christ comes to an end with the redemptive work that he will do on the cross and in his resurrection, he is going to start a new phase of his ministry, and that is intercessory ministry that he does right now as he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. All this is done in this prayer that we're looking at this morning, that Jesus offers to God the Father. In fact, I would propose that this prayer 
is the real Lord's Prayer in the New Testament. The prayer we read in, in Matthew that we, we've, we've titled as the Lord's Prayer isn't really that. It is the prayer that the Lord taught His disciples. And Jesus said that as He, as he taught that prayer. He said, this then is how you should pray. In fact, that prayer is one that Jesus cannot pray. There's only one phrase that I need to point out. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our transgressions. Forgive us our sins. Jesus Christ cannot pray that prayer. He is sinless. He is the Son of God, and therefore that prayer really isn't the Lord's Prayer. It should be titled the Believer's Prayer or the Disciple's Prayer. But this passage is, in fact, the Lord's Prayer. As a sinless, sinless Son of God, as a blemishless sacrifice, Jesus qualifies to be our, our mediator and our sacrifice for all of our sins. There are a number of threads that we see in this passage. There is a thread about the glory of God, and we talk about the glory of the Son of God and the glory that the believers will receive in the Son of God and the glory ultimately that comes to God the Father that He receives and then He reveals. There is also a thread that speaks of the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father and then the believers because of Jesus Christ being in the Son as well. There's a thread about love, love which is the motivator for this prayer in itself. There's a thread about oneness, about oneness of church, about unity. The passage is rich, and it is, it is quite truthfully completely overwhelming. Where do we start and where do we stop when we talk about the Trinity of God? Where do we start and where do we stop when we talk about the love of God? Where do we start and where do we stop when we talk about the unity of the church? Where do we start and where do we stop when we talk about the glory of God? Where do we start and where do we stop when we look at these massive, completely incomprehensible elements of the Christian faith? And so this morning, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we confine ourselves to, to just a glimpse of the marvelous and magnificent truths that we see in this Lord's Prayer. There are two parts to this prayer. The first part spans verses 1 through 5. And in that, in that section of the Scripture, Jesus is having a direct, intimate conversation with God the Father. And the things that you pick out right off the bat is that it is a community and a communion that has existed for a very long time. Jesus asks God to restore the glory to Him that was His before the world began. It is a complete revelation that Jesus Christ is part of the Trinity, that He is the Son of God, and He is one with God the Father. The glory that we ascribe to God is the glory that we also ascribe to Jesus Christ. And finally, after being on earth for 33 years, having put aside some of those divine attributes that He has as, as the Son of God, the time has now come. If you've been following along in the Gospel of John, you know that at the start, Jesus said, my time has not yet come, when Mary asked Him to perform the miracle in Cana. But as we've gone through the Gospel, 
Jesus has said, the time is about to come. And finally, here we are, the time has come because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the work that God the Father had given him. What was that work? The work was to reveal God to mankind in a personal way. God the Son came to this earth and revealed God to him. The work is complete. I was watching uh, an interview with, with Richard Dawkins, who is, uh, um, let me pick some good words, uh, who is an angry and arrogant atheist and is completely anti-God. And in the interview, the question was posed to him, what would you do if after you died you came face to face with God? And in, a, in his smug, with his smug smile on his face and in his British accent, he sounded so intellectual, and he said, if I met God, if I met God in the unlikely event, after I die, I think the first thing I'd say is, which one are you? And then I would say, why did you take such great pains to conceal yourself and to hide away from us? All Mr. Dawkins needs to do is to be sincerely and genuinely in search of God, and God will reveal himself. And he will come to know that Jesus Christ was God in person. All he has to do is be introduced to Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of Christ's coming to earth. In John chapter 1, verse 18, we read, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ is the one we look to when we look for a revelation of God. In verse 6 through 26, the focus changes. In the first six verses, it's a father-son communication. God the Son speaking with God the Father. In the next set of verses, the focus changes. The role of Jesus Christ changes. He becomes the great high priest standing on behalf of all the believers who will ever place their faith in him. Now, the, the role of the high priest is first introduced to us in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 14, Abram had just come back. He was still called Abram at that time. He did not have the name change yet. He has just had a battle with uh, King Kedor Leomer, I think is the name, and his allies. After the battle, he comes back, and he is greeted by the great king, Melchizedek, who takes care of his men's needs. He gives them wine, he gives them bread, he takes care of their physical need. Now, the Bible states for the very first time, Melchizedek was the high priest of God Most High. The first time we're introduced to that title is associated with this man named Melchizedek. And the first thing that Melchizedek does is that he blesses Abram. That's the first priestly action we see in the Bible. Now, what's notable about that is that there was no law at this point. There was no Aaron's priesthood established at that point. But even in that time, God was revealing himself and assigning people to be his high priests to the people. Many times we think that the priesthood was established when Aaron and his lineage were established after the law was given in the desert the tabernacle was set up, and God set an order of the priests to serve the Israelites. 
But with the reference to Melchizedek, we realize that that was happening a long time before that. We do not see any references about sin or sacrifice in association with Melchizedek. That came with the law. And we see that in Exodus, a formal structure for priesthood is set up. Aaron and his lineage are the ones who are assigned to be the high priests. It is not an elected position. It is not a democratically selected position. It is an assigned position by God. Aaron and his lineage will be the high priest. They're given the law, and so a code of conduct is established, a moral guideline which must be followed for us to be in line with God's expectations and God's standard. The law defines sin, and therefore came the need for redemption from sin. Whenever a person broke the law, they were expected to offer a sin offering, and that was the role of the priests. There was a full order of priests, and the man at the top, the man in charge, was the high priest. The high priest's biggest responsibility was to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Holy of Holies was a, a tent within, a, within the tabernacle. It was a small tent. I think it was 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, so about 30 feet, um, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was a perfect cube. But once a year... The, whole, the high priest will go into the Holy of Holies and he would take with him sacrificial blood for his own sin as well as for the sin of the people. And with him he will also take incense, which was a symbol of prayer in that time. Once a year, this man would enter into God's presence. Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. That was the day that would happen. He would be dressed in his priestly garbs that were prescribed in the book of Exodus. And I just want to point out two, of, two elements of the garments that the priests wore or the high priest wore. There were two onyx stones. And the onyx stones, one on each, had the names of the sons of Israel inscribed on them or engraved on them. So on one stone, six names of the sons of Israel. On the second stone, the names of the remaining six sons of Israel. When the priest would dress up to go into the Holy of Holies, these stones would rest on his shoulders, one on the right shoulder, the other on the left shoulder. So in a symbolic way, as he was walking into the presence of God to make atonement for the people, he was literally carrying the people he was accountable for into God's presence. And as he would walk in, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and then he would wave the incense as a prayer for the people, and then he would walk back out. There were no seats for him to sit. There were no benches, no chairs. He would go in, do the ritual, and walk right back out. What the high priest in the old days, in the Old Testament, did for the people of Israel is exactly what Jesus does for all the believers. The high priest offered a sacrifice for redemption and a prayer for intercession. That's what Jesus Christ does for us today. In the Old Testament, the priests sacrificed animals. But in the New Testament, for all of us believers, Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. He is the perfect, blameless, sinless sacrifice. And it is only because of Him that we're able to stand before God in the Holy of Holies. When Jesus entered the heavenly Holy of Holies, He carried all of the believers with Him in the presence of God through all the ages. He offers his own shed blood on heaven's mercy seat. There is no atonement outside 
Jesus Christ's blood. That is the redemptive work that Jesus Christ did. Now, having completed that redemptive work, which was the shedding of his blood for our sins, and after he ascended into heaven, he took on his intercessory work as our great high priest. He stands in the presence of God for every single believer who's put their faith in him. He is not walking out of the Holy of Holies like the Old Testament high priest. He is there for eternity for each and every one of us, and he now intercedes for us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we read, Therefore, since we have a, have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The prayer in chapter 17 is Jesus praying for the believers. This is a prayer specifically for the believers. If you look at verse 9, Jesus says to God, I pray for them, them being the believers, those who place their faith in him. And then in the very next sentence, he makes it even clearer. I'm not praying for the world. I am not praying for the world. If anyone here this morning is not part of the believer group, if you're still in the world, that should be a scary statement. Because what it means is that when you stand before God on judgment day, you have no mediator. There is no advocate. There is no intercessor for you to stand between you and the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the only one. This is not an evangelistic prayer. This is not a prayer for the believer, unbelievers or the lost. Jesus, the high priest, is praying for those who God has given them, given him. Now let's just maybe define what a believer is. You know, we have so much influx of new age and, and mangled Christianity that sometimes we do not know what a believer is. So the believer as Jesus has repeatedly answered in many of these Gospels, especially in John, is someone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and has placed their faith in Him. If you disagree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the only way to God, you have a mangled understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And that is the foundation of what Christianity is about. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? There are a lot of people in the churches around the world who have not been taught what it means to be a true believer, to place your faith in Jesus Christ. How can you know for sure that you're saved? In fact, many times when we have conversations um, with, with people that, that I grew up with in Pakistan, their understanding of being a Christian is being part of the Anglican church. As long as they're on the membership list, they're Christians and they're going to heaven. And that is not the definition in the Bible of who a believer is. Is Jesus just uh, a historical figure? Is Jesus just a good teacher? Is Jesus just a good prophet? He is all of that, but he is so much more, so much more than that. And so we must place our belief in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is 
the Son of God? That is the question. And if you look at the Gospel of John, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the bread of life? And he who comes to him will never go hungry. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the gate and whoever enters through him will be saved? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him will never die? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? And no one comes to the Father except through him. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the vine and you are the branches and apart from him you can do nothing? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If you said yes to that, amen. You are a believer. You are the believer that he carries into the Holy of Holies on his shoulders and intercedes for. Let me share with you a couple of ways how you can be certain that you are a believer. First is confession. First comes confession. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If you're a believer this morning, you can look back at your life and know that there was a moment when the lordship in your life changed. When you were not yours anymore, and you placed Jesus Christ on the throne of your life. There was a distinct moment. You may not remember the day it happened, the date it happened, but you remember that there was a day when it happened. If you cannot look back at a distinct decision point, I would ask you to reevaluate your relationship with Jesus Christ. For me, that, that moment came almost 21 years ago. Um, it came, I don't, I don't remember the day. I do not remember the day. It was summer, 1995, and uh, I know sort of where it was, but I cannot place the actual location. But it was in Thunder Bay. It was along the shore of Lake Superior. I had uh, my best friend's Volvo. Uh, I was driving his Volvo. It was great. Having Jerry was a great thing. He was a solid Christian. Great, great guy. Great friend. You know, you could call him up at 3 o'clock and he would, he would come and pick you up and give you a ride home. A and he had a Volvo. So... And I always, t I used to tell him that it was because of his Volvo that I was his friend, but, but truth of the matter is that he was a great friend. And unknown to me, he was in a small group of students at Lakehead University, and they were praying for my salvation. And Janet was part of that group. So Jerry was a great friend. And every time he would go back to visit his family in, in British Columbia, he would leave his Volvo with me. So I had this beautiful car, that I would drive all over. It was fantastic. 95 was a year. I lost my sister at the start of the year, and I was struggling with this. The news came of her death on a Friday afternoon. Saturday night, Jerry and I are sitting at a coffee shop in Thunder Bay, and Jerry says to me, you've got to come to my church with me. Come to church with me on Sunday. I said, Jerry, I, I'm not coming to your church. I'm fine. Come to church with me on Sunday. Jerry, I'm fine. Come, to, with, come with me to church on Sunday. At 3 o'clock in the morning, 
I finally said to him, look, I got to get home. You're my only ride. If I come to church with you tomorrow morning, will you promise to never ask me again to come to your church? And Jerry said, all right. He drove me home. Next morning, he picked me up. We went to church. And it seemed that the pastor was talking to me. The, the whole sanctuary may as well have been completely empty. He was talking to me. And it was Pastor Terry. He was a senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Thunder Bay at that time. Jerry drove me home after church. For the next one week, I struggled. I struggled with more questions in my mind. There was one question that kept on popping up to the service, surface. So on Saturday, I said to Jerry, look, I know you're going to ask me to come to church with you tomorrow. And he says, no, I, I, I wasn't going to because I promised I was never going to ask you. I said, listen, I know you're going to ask me. I will go to church with you tomorrow, but I need a ride. And second, I don't want you to ever ask me again to come to church with you. And Jerry said, okay. Next Sunday, Jerry picked me up. We went to church. And it seemed that Pastor Terry was talking to me. The whole sanctuary may as well be empty, and he was talking to me. Next week, repeat. The week after, repeat. The week after, repeat. Every single week, one burning question. Why, why do good people suffer? What, what did my parents do to lose their daughter? And I would go to church telling Jerry that I did not want him to take me again, don't, never wanted me to. And I would go and sit in the pew, and it would seem as though Pastor Terry was talking to me. Seven Sundays in a row. So the second Sunday, I said, all right, guy's good. He's got, you know, some kind of sense that I'm going through this. It's coincidence. Third Sunday, oh, it's a little freaky. He's answering my question. Fourth Sunday, what's going on? I asked Jerry, I said, are you telling Pastor Terry what I'm talking about? And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. And then finally, it dawned on me that the Holy Spirit is working in this moment. And so I started to go regularly to First Baptist Church. It was that summer then that I finally had to make a decision. I had the head knowledge. I'd grown up in a Christian church. I had the head knowledge. I knew about Jesus Christ. I did not know Jesus Christ. And so on this, in this summer season, Jerry had gone back to Vancouver. I had the Volvo. I drove out on, on highway uh, on Trans-Canada. And I don't remember where, but I parked in a bay along Lake Superior. And I sat down on the rocks and I audibly said, I need to know if you are real. God, I need to know. I need to know that my parents who are going through grief and are still leaning on you are not doing it in vain. I need to know that you're real. And then I guess the prodigal son is the one that I could closely relate to. Out of my head, the spirit, I heard this instruction. It's been a long time. It's time to come home. And as soon as I heard that, as soon as I heard that, I knew that I will never be the same. 
Jesus Christ became my Savior at that moment. I don't know the date. I don't know the place. But I know when it happened. And that's one indication that you have. You can look back at your life and you know that there was a time when you confessed that Jesus Christ is your Savior and He is your Lord. You know, the other thing that you can look at is the evidence of your growth in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls it sanctification. The Bible calls it sanctification. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus prays for, for His believers. Sanctification is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and making you more and more like Jesus with every passing day. You are not what you were yesterday. You are not what you were two years ago. You are not what you were when you accepted Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit is working in your life and making you more like Christ. That work will not complete until, until the final day, until we're all taken into glory. But the Holy Spirit works on you in your life, through your life, to be more like Christ. It is a separation of the believer from the world. You are not yours anymore. You're not of the world anymore. You may be in the world, but you're not of it. Your Lord is Jesus Christ. During this process of sanctification, you know that there are things happening within you. Things that, you were, that were acceptable to you are no longer acceptable to you. Friendships that were acceptable to you are no longer acceptable to you. But there's also a change that happens. Things that were not in your realm of, of influence and sphere suddenly start coming into your realm of sphere and influence. Things that you did not appreciate or enjoy, like missionary stories, you suddenly have a deeper appreciation for that because God is at work in you. Things that matter to God matter to you. Things that displease God start to displease you. Things that please God start to please you. And it is a 180-degree turnabout. You know it. If you're a believer and you're walking in submission to the Holy Spirit, you know what I'm talking about. Self-improvement, self self-help, that is not sanctification. It has nothing to do with your own strength. It has nothing to do with how I can change myself. In fact, if I make a statement that I have changed in this way, I do not have an understanding of the work of sanctification. Because if my sentence focuses on me instead of he, there's a problem. I have a problem. I'm self-centered rather than God-centered. I'm deluded if I believe that this transformation can come about in any way through my own strength. It is all the work and actions of the Holy Spirit. My job is to be sensitive and to be in submission to what God is doing in my life. The last part of the passage deals with Jesus praying for the believers. I think we're going to cut this one short quite a bit. This is Jesus Christ's prayer that he's, he prayed for his believers in this chapter and forever. This is the work of intercession that Jesus Christ is doing right now. At this very moment, in the Holy of Holies in heaven, standing before God the Father, Jesus Christ is doing this. We'll take, we'll take a quick walk through this, through the chapter, and I'll just point out many things that Jesus is praying for for his believers. In, verses, in verse 2, Jesus prays that the believers will have eternal life. 
What is eternal life? He answers that in verse 3. It is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Jesus prays that the believers will be protected in the world. In verses 11 and then 21 and 23, Jesus prays that the believers will be one and he, as he and his Father are one. In verse 11 and again 14 and 16, Jesus prays that the believers will be kept from the evil one. In verse 13, Jesus prays that the believers may have the full measure of his joy within them. In verse 17 and 19, Jesus prays that the believers may be sanctified by the truth. We already talked about that. The truth is God's word, and that's what, we, what the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. In verse 24, Jesus prays that the believers will be with him where he is to see his glory. And in verse 26, Jesus prays that the believers will have the Father's love in us. We're not going to look at all nine of these, obviously, for time's sake. But let me just point out the one in verse 11 and 21 and 23. Jesus prays that the believers will be one as he and the Father are one. Many times, preachers will take that verse and preach on church unity. Everybody getting along, denominational getting along, everybody, you know, gets together and has a, has a great time. We choose to, we agree to disagree with each other, but we're all brothers. There are other instances in the scriptures where there is specific teaching on church unity. I don't think this one specifically refers to that. And the qualifier here that I'm using is that this is unity as Jesus Christ has with the Father. This is not about just getting along. What type of unity we see in the Trinity? It is, a, it is the unity of purpose. It is the unity of glorifying each other. It is the unity of taking on the different roles that each person in the Trinity has and doing them and carrying them out. It is a perfect unity within the Godhead. And so the unity that I believe Jesus refers to here is the unity that each believer has with God. Now here's the thing about that. If there are two believers, and I'll just use maybe Pastor Doug as an example, if we're only talking about church unity, then it's important for Doug and I to have consensus on a decision. The consensus may come even though Doug's right and I am wrong, I may say, well, I guess Doug is a pastor. I do not have full consensus into that decision or full agreement. Within me, there is an element of rebellion. I just want to agree with Doug so we can get moving. That is not the unity that we see in the Trinity. So let me take that example a bit further. If Doug is in perfect communion with God, as a sinner, he is in perfect communion with God, and I am in perfect communion with God as a sinner, I'm getting my direction from God, Doug's getting his direction from God, guess what happens? There is a natural unity that occurs between the two of us. It is not about arriving at consensus, it is about agreeing with God. If I agree with God and Doug agrees with God, guess what? We agree with each other. So this unity that Jesus Christ refers to is not just about believers and churches getting along. It's about each one of us being in unity with God himself. 
As the worship team comes forward, I just want to give you one last word of encouragement. It is this. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, let there be no doubt in your mind at this very moment that Jesus Christ is interceding for you. You have a high priest who stands in the presence of God. You have an advocate who stands for you and with you every single time you have to make a, make a trip to that Holy of Holies. Every single time I sin and the Holy Spirit works in me and brings me to a point of confession and repentance, my spirit walks into the Holy of Holies and Jesus Christ stands next to me and says to God the Father, He is covered by my blood. And I have prayed for Him. And sometimes that happens many times a day. But it is inexhaustible. His grace is far greater than my sin. And so I continue to work with the Holy Spirit and I continue to sin. And in every single moment, every single instance, Jesus Christ stands beside me, for me, in presence of God, and does His intercessory work. And it is because of His work that I can approach the throne of God with boldness and with confidence. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't already, and you can approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because of what you have done, what I have done, but what Jesus has done, because of His work. Amen.